Please check the description for a link to paper copies of the books featured and upcoming as well as links to other products that will help support this podcast. Thanks for being awesome. In this section called The Long-Term View, Peter Lynch talks about how to design a portfolio to maximize gain and minimize risk. He discusses when to buy and sell stocks and what to do when the market collapses. Some of the common misconceptions about why stocks rise and fall are examined. Peter Lynch explains the pitfalls of gambling on options, futures, and the shorting of stocks. He takes a look at the stock market today and talks about how some things have changed. Chapter 16, Designing a Portfolio. I've heard people say that they'd be satisfied with a 25 or 30% annual return from the stock market. Satisfied? That rate that soon owned half the country. Even the tycoons of the 20s couldn't guarantee themselves 30% forever. That's when Wall Street was rigged in their favor. 9 to 10% return a year is the market average, and it's considered the generic long-term return for stocks. You can get 10% over time by investing in a no-load mutual fund that buys all 500 stocks in the S&P 500 index. This fund duplicates the average automatically. You can get a 9 to 10% return without doing any homework or spending any extra money. When you pick your own stocks, you ought to be getting a 12 to 15% return compounded over time. This is 12 to 15% after all costs and commissions have been subtracted and all the dividends have been added. It costs a small investor a lot of money to trade in and out. If you turn over your portfolio once a year, you might lose as much as 4% to commissions. If you're going to get 12 to 15% after expenses, you have to make 16 to 19% from picking stocks. The more you trade, the harder it will be to outperform the funds. How do you design a portfolio to get that 12 to 15% return? In my view, it's best to own as many stocks as there are situations in which you've got an edge and in which you've found an exciting prospect that passes the research tests. Maybe that will be a single stock, or maybe it's a dozen stocks. There's no point diversifying into unknown companies just for the sake of diversity. But that said, it isn't safe to own just one stock. The single stock you choose might be the victim of unforeseen circumstances in spite of your best efforts. Small portfolios should contain 3 to 10 stocks. There are a couple reasons for this. The first reason is that if you're looking for 10 baggers, the more stocks you own, the more likely one of yours will become a 10 bagger. The second reason is that the more stocks you own, the more flexibility you have to rotate funds between them. This is an important part of my strategy. Spreading your money among several stock categories is another way to minimize the risk. Beyond that, you might want to consider the following information. Slow growers are normally low risk, low gain. These stocks are usually priced accordingly. Stalwarts are low risk, moderate gain. If you own Coca-Cola, everything goes right next year, you could make 30 to 50%. If everything goes wrong, you could lose 20%. Asset plays are low risk, high gain, if you're sure of the value of the assets. Cyclicals may be low risk and high gain, or high risk and low gain, depending how well you can anticipate the cycles. If you're right, you can see 10 baggers here. 
If you're wrong, you can lose 80 to 90% of your investment. Additional 10 baggers can come from fast growers and from turnarounds. Both categories are high risk, high gain. If a fast grower falters or the troubled turnaround has a relapse, the downside can be losing all your money. Later on, I'll explain when to sell a stock, but here I want to discuss selling as it relates to portfolio management. I'm constantly rechecking my stocks. I add and subtract from my investments as things change. But I don't cash in because cashing in will be getting out of the market. My idea is to stay in the market and rotate stocks depending on the fundamental situations. By successfully rotating in and out of several stalwarts for modest gains, you can get the same result as you could with one big winner. I keep the fast growers as long as the earnings are growing. The expansion continues and no impediments have arisen. Same thing for cyclicals and turnarounds. You want to get out of the situations where you see the fundamentals worsen and the price increase. You want to get into situations where the fundamentals are better and the price is down. If you can't convince yourself, when I'm down 25%, I'm a buyer, and banish forever the fatal thought, when I'm down 25%, I'm a seller, then you'll never make a decent profit in stocks. I've always detested stop orders. These are automatic bailouts at predetermined prices, usually 10% below the purchase price of a stock. True, when you put in a stop order, you've limited your losses to about 10%. But in today's volatile market, the stock most always hits the stop. It's uncanny how stocks seem to shoot straight up after your stop is hit and you're out of the stock. There's no way to rely on stops as protection on the downside, just as there's no way to rely on artificial objectives as goals on the upside. If I had believed in sell when it's a double, I wouldn't have benefited from a single very, very big winner. Stick around to see what happens as long as the original story continues to make sense. You'll be amazed at results over time. Chapter 17, The Best Time to Buy and Sell I don't want to sound like a market timer and tell you there's a best time to buy stocks. The best time to buy stocks will always be the day you're convinced you found solid merchandise at a good price. However, there are two specific periods when great bargains can be found. The first is during the ritual end-of-the-year tax selling. It's no accident that the most severe drops have occurred between October and December. It's the holiday period, and brokers need spending money just like the rest of us. There's extra incentive for them to call and ask what you might want to sell to get a tax loss. Institutional investors also like to jettison the losers at the end of the year. They want to clean up their portfolios for their upcoming evaluations. All this compound selling drives stock prices down. This selling begets more selling and drives perfectly good issues to low levels. The second time to buy stocks is during the collapses, drops, burps, hiccups, and freefalls that occur in the stock market every few years. If you can summon the courage to buy during these scary episodes, you'll find opportunities that you wouldn't have thought you'd ever see. Over the years, I've learned to think about when to sell the same way I think about when to buy. No single formula really applies. 
I pay no attention to external economic conditions, except in the instances when a specific business will obviously be affected. But more often than not, I sell when I find a company's story has begun to collapse. I'll sell a slow grower after there's been a 30 to 50% appreciation or when the fundamentals have deteriorated. Additional sell signs for slow growers include the company has lost market share for two consecutive years, or the company has curtailed spending on research and development, or the company has paid so much for its acquisitions that the balance sheet has been hurt. When I sell a stalwart, I frequently replace it with another stalwart. The stock price gets above the earnings line, or the price earnings multiple strays too far above the normal range, you might think about selling, waiting to buy it back at a lower price. Additional sell signs for stalwarts include, the company's recently introduced products have had mixed results, or the company's stock has a P.E. of 15, while similar companies in the industry have P.E.s of 11 or 12, or the company's growth rate has been slowing down. I try to sell a cyclical stock towards the end of the cycle, but who knows when that is. Other than at the end of the cycle, the best time to sell is when something has actually started to go wrong. An obvious sell signal is when inventories are building up and the company can't get rid of them. Additional sell signs for cyclicals include when union contracts are about to expire and labor leaders want a restoration of the wages they gave up in the last contract, or the final demand for the product is slowing down, or the company has doubled its capital spending budget to rebuild a new plant instead of modernizing an old plant at a lower cost. Fast growers are tricky. You don't want to lose the potential 10-bagger. The main thing to watch for is the end of the second phase of rapid growth. If 40 Wall Street analysts are giving the stock their highest recommendation, 60% of the shares are held by institutions, and three national magazines have fawned over the CEO, it's definitely time to think about selling. Additional sell signs for fast growers include the company's top two executives and several key employees leave to join a rival firm, or the stock is selling at a P multiple of over 30, while the most optimistic earnings growth projections are 15 to 20% a year for the next two years, or sales have dropped 3% in the last quarter. The best time to sell a turnaround is after it's turned around. All the troubles are over, and everybody knows it. The company has become the company it was before it fell apart, growth, cyclical, or whatever. If the turnaround has been successful, you have to reclassify the stock. Additional sell signs for turnarounds include the company's debt suddenly rises sharply, or the company's inventories are rising at twice the sales growth rate, or the P-E ratio is inflated in relation to earnings prospects. Rather than sell an asset play, I like to wait for the raider. You'll want to hold on as long as the company is not on a debt binge and reducing the value of the assets. Additional asset play sell signals include the company's management announcing it will issue 10% more shares to be sold at discount to the real market value to finance a diversification program, or the company has sold a division which is expected to sell for $20 million but only went for $12 million. Or institutional ownership in the company has risen from 25% to 60% in the past few years. Chapter 18, 
the 12 silliest and most dangerous things people say about stock prices. Since graduate school, I've heard a continuous stream of theories about stocks. Each one is more misguided than the last. The following statements are the 12 silliest things people say about stock prices. I present them here, hoping you'll dismiss them from your mind. Silly statement number one. If it's gone down this much already, it can't go much lower. I bet the owners of Polaroid shares were repeating this very phrase after the stock had fallen a third of the way down from its high of 143.5. Polaroid had been a solid company with a blue chip reputation. When earnings and sales collapsed, a lot of people didn't pay attention to how overpriced the stock was. Instead, they continued to reassure themselves that if it's gone down this much already, it can't go much lower. The fact is, Polaroid did go much lower. This great stock fell from $143 to $14.5 in less than a year. Only then did it can't go much lower turn out to be true. The truth is, there's simply no rule that tells you how low a stock can go. Silly statement number two. You can always tell when a stock has hit bottom. Bottom fishing is a popular investor pastime, but it's usually the fisherman who gets hooked. Trying to catch the bottom of a falling stock is like trying to catch a falling knife. It's normally a good idea to wait until the knife hits the ground, sticks, vibrates for a while, and settles before you try to grab it. Grabbing a rapidly falling stock results in painful surprises. You almost always grab it in the wrong place. Silly statement number three. If it's gone this high already, how can it possibly go higher? Right you are, unless, of course, you're talking about a stock like Philip Morris. Philip Morris is one of the greatest stocks of all time. If you bought Philip Morris in the 1950s for the equivalent of 75 cents a share, you might have been tempted to sell it for 250 a share in 1961. The theory being that this stock couldn't go much higher. Eleven years later, with the stock selling for seven times the 1961 price and 23 times the 1950s price, you might again have concluded it couldn't go any higher. But if you sold it then, you would have missed the next seven bagger on top of the last 23 bagger. There's no arbitrary limit on how high a stock can go if the story stays good and the earnings continue to improve and the fundamentals don't change. Silly statement number four. It's only $3 a share. What can I lose? How many times have you heard people say this? Maybe you've said it to yourself. You come across some stock that sells for $3 a share, and you're thinking, it's a lot safer than buying a $50 stock. I'd worked in this business for almost 20 years before it finally dawned on me that whether a stock costs $50 a share or $1 a share, if it goes to zero, you lose everything. The point is that a lousy cheap stock is just as risky as a lousy expensive stock. Silly statement number five. Eventually, they always come back. People said RCA would come back. 65 years passed and it never did. When you consider the thousands of bankrupt companies, the solvent companies that never regain their former prosperity, and companies that get bought out at prices far below their all-time highs, 
you begin to see the weakness in this argument. Silly statement number six. It's always darkest before the dawn. It's very human to believe that when things have gotten a little bad, they can't get any worse. For example, people invested on the basis of freight car deliveries are amazed when business dropped from a peak of over 95,000 units delivered in 1979 to a low less than 45,000 units in 1981. This was the lowest level in 17 years, and nobody imagined it could get worse. However, from 45,000 units, it dropped to 17,500 in 1982, and then to 5,700 in 1983. This was a whopping 90% decline in a once vibrant industry. Sometimes it's always darkest before the dawn. But then again, in the stock market, other times, it's always darkest before pitch black. Silly statement number seven. When it rebounds to $10, I'll sell. Very often, downtrodden stocks never return to the level at which you decided you'd sell. In fact, the minute you say, if it gets back to 10, I'll sell, you probably doom the stock to several years of teetering around just below 975 before it keels over to 4 on its way down to 1. This painful process may take a decade. All the while, you're tolerating an investment you don't even like because some inner voice tells you to get $10 for it. Whenever I'm tempted to fall for this one, I remind myself that unless I'm confident enough in the company to buy more shares, I ought to be selling immediately. Silly statement number eight. What, me worry? Conservative stocks don't fluctuate much. Two generations of conservative investors grew up with the idea you couldn't go wrong with utility stocks. Then suddenly, there were nuclear problems and rate-based difficulties. Stocks like Consolidated Edison lost 80% of their value. Then just as suddenly, Con Ed gained back more than it had lost. There simply isn't a stock you can own that you can afford to ignore. Silly statement number nine. It's taking too long for anything to ever happen. If you give up on a stock because you're tired of waiting for something wonderful to happen, then something wonderful will begin to happen the day after you get rid of it. Most of the money I make is in the third or fourth year that I own something, although sometimes it takes longer. If all's right with the company and whatever attracted me to it hasn't changed, I'm confident that sooner or later my patience will be rewarded. Silly statement number 10. Look at all the money I've lost. I didn't buy it. Regarding someone else's gain as your personal loss is not a productive attitude for investing in the stock market. The worst part about this kind of thinking is that it leads people to try and play catch-up. They buy stocks they shouldn't buy under the delusion they are protecting themselves from losing more than they've already lost. This usually results in real losses. Silly statement number 11. I missed that one. I'll catch the next one. The trouble is, the next one rarely works. If you miss Toys R Us, a great company that continued to go up, and bought Greenman Brothers, a mediocre company that went down, you compounded your error. You've taken a mistake that cost you nothing because you didn't lose anything by not buying Toys R Us and turned it into a mistake that cost you a lot. 
In most cases, it's better to buy the good company at a high price than it is to jump in on the next one at a bargain price. Silly statement number 12. Stock's gone up, so I must be right. Or the stock's gone down, so I must be wrong. If I had to choose one great fallacy of investing, it's believing that when a stock's price goes up, it means you've made a good investment. All it means when a stock goes up or down after you've bought it is there was somebody who was willing to pay more or less for the same merchandise. I've bought stocks at 10 that went to 14 that now if they double, you couldn't buy a Hershey bar with them. I bought stocks at 10 that went to 6 that are now $40. It's what happens to fundamentals that really counts over the long term. Chapter 19, Options, Futures, and Shorts. I've never bought a future nor an option in my entire investing career. I can't imagine buying either one now. It's hard enough to make money in regular stocks without getting distracted by these side bets. There's no point describing how futures and options really work. In the first place, it requires a long, tedious explanation, and you'd still be confused. Second, if you know more about them, you might get interested. And third, I don't understand futures and options myself. Actually, I do know a few things about options. I know that the large potential return is attractive to many small investors or dissatisfied with getting rich slowly. Instead, they opt for getting poor quickly. That's because an option is a contract that's only good for a month or two. Unlike most stocks, it often expires worthless. Then the options player must buy another option, only to lose 100% of his or her money again. A string of these, and you're in deep trouble. When you buy a share of even a risky stock, you are contributing something to the growth of the country. That's what stocks are for. In the multi-billion dollar futures and options market, none of the money is put to any constructive use. It doesn't finance anything more than the cars, planes, and houses bought by the brokers and the handful of winners. You've probably heard the term shorting a stock. This enables you to profit from a stock that's going down. Shorting is the same thing as borrowing something from the neighbors, selling the item, and pocketing the money. Sooner or later, you go out and buy the identical item and return it to the neighbors. What the shorter hopes to do is sell the borrowed item at a very high price, buy the replacement at a very low price, and keep the difference. There are some serious drawbacks to going short. During the time you borrow the shares, the rightful owner gets a dividend and other benefits. Also, you can actually spend the proceeds you get from shorting a stock until you paid the shares back and closed out the transaction. You're required to maintain a sufficient balance in your brokerage account to cover the value of the shorted stock. None of us is immune to the panic we feel when a normal stock drops in price, but our panic is restrained by our understanding the stock cannot go lower than zero. If you shorted something that's going up, you begin to realize there's nothing to stop it from going to infinity because there's no ceiling on a stock price. Stocks that are supposed to go down but don't remind me of the cartoon characters who walk off cliffs into thin air. As long as they don't recognize their predicament, they just hang out there 
forever. Before I continue with the last part of this program, let me remind you of the following points dealing with the long-term view. Market declines are great opportunities to buy stocks in companies you like. Different categories of stocks carry with them different risks and rewards. Stock prices often move in opposite directions from the fundamentals, but long-term, the direction and sustainability of profits will prevail. Just because a company is doing poorly doesn't mean it can't do worse. Just because the price goes up doesn't mean you're right. Just because the price goes down doesn't mean you're wrong. Stalwarts with heavy institutional ownership that have outperformed the market and are overpriced are due for a rest or a decline. Buying a company with mediocre prospects just because the stock is cheap is a losing technique. Companies don't grow without a reason. Fast growers don't grow quickly forever. You don't lose anything by not owning a successful stock, even if it's a 10-bagger. Don't become so attached to a winner that complacency sets in and you stop monitoring the story. If a stock goes to zero, you lose just as much money whether you bought it for $50 or for $2 a share. You lose everything you invested. You can improve your results by careful pruning and rotation based on fundamentals. When stocks are out of line with reality and better alternatives exist, sell and switch into something else. If you don't think you can beat the market, buy a mutual fund and save yourself a lot of extra work and money. You can miss lots of tin baggers and still beat the market. I have. Chapter 20. 50,000 Frenchmen Can Be Wrong Thinking back over the years, I remember several news events and their effects on the prices of stocks, beginning with President Kennedy's election. I was 16 in 1960, and I had already heard that a Democratic presidency was always bad for stocks. I was surprised that day after the election, the market rose slightly. During the Cuban Missile Crisis, the one and only time America faced the immediate prospect of nuclear war, I feared for myself, my family, and my country. Yet the stock market fell less than 3%. Seven months later, when President Kennedy forced the steel industry to roll back prices, I feared for nothing. But the market had one of its largest declines in history, 7%. I was mystified that the potential of a nuclear holocaust was less terrifying to Wall Street than the president's meddling in the steel business. The great events of the 1970s and the market reactions to them were as follows. Nixon imposes price controls, market up 3%. Nixon resigns, market down 1%. Ford's whip inflation now buttons were introduced, market up 4.6%. IBM wins a big antitrust case, market up 3.3%. The decade of the 70s was the poorest for stocks since the 1930s, and yet the major one-day changes were all upward on the days just mentioned. The event of most lasting consequence was OPEC's oil embargo of October 19, 1973. This helped to take the market down 16% in three months and 39% in 12 months. 
It's interesting to note that the market did not respond to the significance of the embargo at the time. It actually rose four points on that day and climbed an additional 14 points before starting its dramatic fall. This demonstrates that the market, like individual stocks, can move in the opposite direction of the fundamentals over the short term. The 1980s have had more days of exceptional gains and losses than were seen in all the other decades combined. In the big picture, most of them are meaningless. I'd rank the 508-point drop in October 1987 far below the meeting of the economic ministers on September 22, 1985 for its importance to long-term investors. At this conference, the major industrial nations agreed to coordinate economic policy and allow the value of the dollar to decline. After that decision was announced, the general market rose 38% over six months, had an even greater impact on specific companies which benefited from the lower dollar. In my opinion, the breakup of AT&T ranks near the top of the most important developments in the stock market. It affected 2.96 million shareholders and over a million employees. The wobble of October 1987 doesn't even rank in my top three. Lately, I've been hearing that the small investor has no chance in this dangerous environment. I've been hearing that the year of professional management has brought new sophistication and intelligence to the stock market. There are 50,000 stock pickers dominating the show, and like the expression, 50,000 Frenchmen can't be wrong, they can't possibly be wrong. From where I sit, I'd say the 50,000 stock pickers are usually right, but only for the last 20% of a typical move. It's that last 20% that Wall Street studies for, clamors for, and then lines up for, all the while with a sharp eye on the exits. The idea is to make a quick gain and then stampede out the door. Small investors don't have to fight this mob. They can calmly walk in the entrance when there's a crowd at the exit, and they can walk out the exit when there's a crowd at the entrance. I've been hearing that the 1987-88 market is a rerun of the 1929-30 market, and we're about to enter another Great Depression. So far, the 1987-88 market has behaved very much like the 1929-30 market, but so what? If we have another depression, it won't be because the stock market crashed any more than the earlier depression happened because the stock market crashed. In those days, only 1% of Americans owned stocks. The earlier depression was caused by an economic downturn in a country in which 66% of the workforce was in manufacturing, 22% was in farming, and the service sector was only 12%. There was no Social Security, unemployment compensation, pension plans, welfare and Medicare, guaranteed student loans, or government-insured bank accounts. Today, manufacturing represents only 27% of the workforce. Agriculture accounts for a mere 3%, and the service sector has grown steadily through recession and boom. It now accounts for 70% of the U.S. workforce. Unlike the 30s, a large percentage of people now own or have equity built up in their own homes. The average household now has two wage earners instead of one, providing an economic cushion that didn't exist 60 years ago.
If we have a depression, it won't be like the last one. Every day I hear that major companies are going out of business. Some of them are. But what about the thousands of smaller companies that are going into business and providing millions of new jobs? As I make my usual rounds, I'm amazed to discover that many companies are going strong. Some are actually earning money. If we've lost all sense of enterprise and our will to work, then who are those people who seem to be stuck in the rush hour? Frequent follies notwithstanding,